Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Alex Bingley, co-founder and managing director of the Haywoods Group, a family-owned residential property development business based in London. Alex, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally we'd get straight on to the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how has this affected uh, your operations? <laughs> uh, well, it's been pretty dramatic, think. Um, as uh, the majority of what we do would be probably described as uh, construction project management, we actually haven't uh, we haven't operations, uh, but it uh, it has made supply and uh, supply both materials and uh, and labour a challenge, far more of a challenge. So it probably has more than doubled our uh, our management um, uh, uh, requirements. Um, it has not been as much of a disaster as I think many industries possibly have experienced, uh, we have uh, we have been able to continue on, as it were, processing our raw material. Um, but uh, the, the the sales market obviously died for two or three months, but that seems to have bounced back in a pretty buoyant fashion now. Um, and we are continuing to see today. We are continuing to see to pretty good pretty pretty good sales uh, uh, being agreed. So. I would think, uh, would, I, would I describe it as a disaster? The answer is no. Um, but uh, has it been a significant hiccup? The answer is yes. Uh, what we see in the future um, <laughs> remains to be seen. Oh, I, quite clearly, that is for the whole of the economy. Um, now, when we look at the working practices uh, that you've had to undertake in the past uh, few months, is there anything positive from this period of time that you're going to hold on to when we all get to go back to normal? Well, uh, the big chat at the moment seems to be uh, amongst uh, peers and, uh, and, and, and other people uh, in industry it seems to be the remote working um, uh, lifestyle that everyone has, uh, has gone to. To be completely frank, we actually closed our office in May 2019 and have been working remotely as an office since then. Um, and it's not only been amazing for production because uh, the sort of lifestyle and uh, freedom that people uh, that the people who work for us have um, have appreciated, um, but also that it means that you don't you're not tied at all. I used to commute for an hour and a half to my London office, and then I'd start work, and then I would probably leave my office a few hours later to go to site. Uh, for project management meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Cutting out that, that yeah, so hour and a half in the morning and hour and a half in the evening, uh, well, lack of productive time is is really good for your psyche. It's really, really good for the way you feel about work. Or where, where, you know, to be frank, the people who work with, I always say with rather than for me, um, have, um, have, have responded. Um, and so... What has it done, um, as far as we are concerned? Um, it, it probably hasn't. It probably hasn't had it as dramatic as an, an, an effect as uh, as many other industries uh, will probably experience over the course of the next months and years to come. 
Well, it certainly will be an interesting journey, especially uh, for all industries across the country. We should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? <laughs> Good question, because I must say that is very much how I try not to run a company. Um, I very much, as I just said, I very much work with um, the people who work uh, for my organization. I don't I ne- never say people work for me. So what does leader uh, mean to me? I, I think probably um, it would be best described as, as a chief strategist. Um, you know, my... I find my, my strengths are in, in, in coming up with the ideas that drive the organization forward. Um, mm. And from there, I find that actually, if those ideas are good, people are incentivized, they don't need a leader, as in a major general, to tell them what to do. They need, that sounds like a really good idea. Hey, that's quite exciting. That I'm incentivized to get on with it, either financially or some other way. And you go from there. So personally, I don't like—I don't really like the word. To be frank, is the answer. I would prefer, if I was to to do so, uh, to describe myself as a uh, more of a as an idea man and as a strategist rather than a leader. So you like a, a more collegiate approach. Very much so. Very much so. I might say I, I, I very much uh, appreciate the fact that if people feel that they're part of a good team, not the junior member of a team or any of the rest of it, but just part of a team that is doing a good job, then realistically, that's how we get the best results. And how does this exhibit itself on a day-to-day basis? What is uh, obviously uh, what we'd normally be calling leadership, but we won't in this context. How does your blank qualities exhibit themselves on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think it very much is in your attitude towards people. You know, from the most junior member of staff, and hey, listen, I've, I've just done that, haven't I? I've just, uh, just described myself in that case as a senior member of staff rather than a junior member of staff. But anyway, from the from the newest member of staff to people who've been with us for 10, 15 years, um, it, it's treating them at, at like like human beings, treating them, uh, I would, would I suggest, like friends, possibly, is mm-hmm. the answer. So, you know, you're not telling them what to do. You're asking them to do stuff. Uh, you are... That there's no, that there's no. Well, you've got this wrong. Just, if you if you did it a different way, would it work better? Rather than you know what you've messed up and you need to do uh, you need to do better. Otherwise, I'm going to sack you. Yeah. Mm. That those that, those uh, I, I suppose from from a, from a day to day point of view, that it's it's an attitude towards people rather than much really really anything else. Now, how does this uh, affect uh, the resolution of conflict when conflict does occur? Uh, because sometimes when being too close to people, you get that kind of uh, almost uh, contempt that, that is, is born out there. How do you handle uh, the resolution of conflict? Yeah, yeah, no, Matthew, that I know, Matthew, I very much recognize that as the answer. There's no question about that. Um, having said that, um, I tend to find that if the idea is good enough, uh, then the conflict time is dramatically reduced mm. so if we if we figure that what we're doing is a good plan and we get we, we all go in the same direction then the amount of conflict time is dramatically reduced now i've also worked with my brother for the last 27 years so you can imagine there's some head-to-head <laughs> stuff that would go on there yes um it's it's remarkable how little head-to-head there has been actually 
But we, when we first started out, um, figured that we would, where we, where we didn't have enough capital to be able to run multiple jobs. So we were both trying to effectively project director the jobs that went on in our organization. And mm. to be frank, that's a disaster. Don't right. ever have two equal they don't equal partners sitting at the top or the top at the direction of a part because one decision will be made and one you know and it will be it will be um, uh, disagreed with and then where does the where, where does the resolution come from? Well, you so get into the point, too many chiefs, not enough Indian exactly, situations. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and more than one chief is too many. It doesn't mm. matter what you're doing. More than one chief in top of the pile is too many. So at that stage, we then figured the best way to get around this was to designate one of us as the project director for a specific job mm. and very, very clearly state that the, 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 way to, um, uh, the way to run these jobs was, yes, we'll have everyone's suggestion, we'll take everyone's suggestion, and we, we used to, this is exactly what we used to say, everyone from the dustman through to well, the cleaner through everyone else can sit there and say, listen, this is my suggestion. I think you would look, get, it would be best done this way. And we'll consider all of the above, but the, the the final call is taken by the project director, that one person who's sitting there who is designated. And that's how it is. And there's no argument. There's no nothing. There's no, hey, this, you've got this all wrong. That person is going to live and, uh, and, and <laughs> dare I say, die with that, um, uh, with that decision. Well, that's a good approach to have. Um, now, unfortunately, the last grains of sand are falling through the hourglass on our interview. Uh, but before I let you go, Alex, what does the next 12 months have in store for the Haywoods Group? Yeah, it's a very good question, isn't it? I think everyone's holding their breath. Um, if it continues on the way it is at the moment, um, and I'm not talking about the Haywoods Group, I'm talking about the economy, then, well, frankly, we'd be looking to buy more projects, um, and we are at the moment looking potentially to buy more projects um, and to get on with, uh, with producing uh, more property. Um, as I say, there's a there's a great deal of uncertainty behind that. The nice thing about property development, well, one of them, I suppose from that point of view, the nice thing about property development is that it takes 12, 18, 24 months to produce the properties that we do. So mm. uh, it's, it's probably less uncertain. Um, the other thing that uh, I think that we are most certainly going to be uh, looking towards is, very, is being very specific about the areas that we're in. Um, we will be looking to continue on with producing uh, producing property, but just very, very carefully bought. Well, Alex, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. I do hope we can have you back on when things get back to a more even keel. Uh, but for now, <laughs> Alex, thank you. Perfect. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you. That was Alex Bingley, co-founder and managing director of the Haywoods Group. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was Mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... um, Mm source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role you know just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world, and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure, no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC and you're wearing red, wearing red. So it w- what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred. Not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown. Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.